You can hear our show on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows. Plus, discover from over 65,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can even create custom playlists for different shows. So please rate and review Exit the Echoes on Stitcher. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, and iPad. It's also in over 4 million car dashboards. Since you can stream without Wi-Fi, there's no downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. Stream your favorite podcasts. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. Also, Exit the Echoes is now hosted on Anchor.fm. The app is free, and it's a great way to stay up to date with your favorite shows. Anchor also lets you listen to your favorite podcast app by just clicking the link. Find Exit the Echoes on the Anchor app or anchor.fm and leave us a voice message. Let us know what you think of the show, ideas for future shows, or any feedback you may have. Welcome to Exit the Echoes, everybody. Welcome to Exit the Echoes. On this episode, we're discussing conspiracies, how they come about, and what to do about harmful ones. So we'll be going through a paper titled Conspiracy Theories by Cass R. Sunstein and Adrian Vermula. Um, it's from the Harvard University Law School and the University of Chicago Law School. So Ramos has a disclaimer. Hi guys, uh, my name is Gilbert Ramos. Um, as I am a federal employee, for the United States government, I should be uh, very clear that my views during this podcast do not represent the views of the United States government, the United States Air Force, or any other organization that I'm a part of. These are strictly my views, uh, my thoughts, my processes, and they in no way, shape, or form reflect that of the United States government. Because we know they are listening. We just had to make Always. it clear. <laughs> in our show notes, you can find a link to this paper on SSRN.com. So... The authors begin by pointing out, right there in the abstract, what seems to be their motivation behind trying to define and dismantle conspiratorial thought. They say that those who subscribe to conspiracy theories may create serious risks, including the risks of violence, and the existence of such theories raises significant challenges for policy and law. Ramos, you were saying that when we talked about this paper last time, um, that it kind of makes the government the big bad villain. Yeah, um, I was reading through it and um, preparing my notes, and it came across as this overall theme that uh, not necessarily the paper itself or the, the writers of the paper themselves, but it's it seems that they, they theorize that the conspiracy theorists kind of like are looking for that shadow council, looking for that you know the government, their government's doing this, we're hiding things, and all that good stuff. Uh, it's it's looking for a big bad villain that we can't see. And the government usually fits that description. Oh, right, right, right. And then uh, you pointed out that the authors are, are talking about how the conspiracy theories aren't necessarily just a domestic thing here in the U.S. Yes. Um, I, was, I was also interested to see that um, it's, it, isn't just, it isn't just our country and our government. It's, it's literally everyone that's, that's uh, 
involved in this conspiratorial thought. No one really trusts their government. Really, no one really trusts their uh, their higher ups. I guess would be a, a good term. They are right. all like kind of weary of a of a of a power they don't quite understand. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that there's not there's not a single context where the uh, tendency for conspiratorial thought doesn't come into play. So then they go on in the paper to lay out the plan for the paper. Um, they say that they aim to sketch some psychological and social mechanisms that produce, sustain, and spread these theories to show that some of them are quite important and should be taken seriously. And then they offer suggestions for governmental responses, both as a matter of policy and as a matter of law. Part one explores some of the definitional issues and lays out some of the mechanisms that produce conspiracy theories and theorists. They begin by discussing different understandings of the nature of conspiracy theories and different accounts of the kind of errors made by those who hold them. Um, Ramos, you were pointing out some of the conspiracy theories they discussed that actually turned out to be true. Yeah, they, um, that, uh, that one, those ones kind of keep me up at night. The, uh, the ones that always turn out to be true, like the um, MK Ultra, which is the one that they uh, were distributing LSD, trying to, or looking into LSD, trying to uh, see the, the prospects of mind control. Uh, the Watergate scandal, I'm sure everyone knows that one, you know. Uh, because that one's probably one of the most famous ones. But those, those in particular make me, make me sweat a little bit because, like, mind control. Yeah. Um, and it like turned out to be true. <laughs> yeah, and that's terrifying. Like, like that's insane. Because once, once something like, once anything little like that, well, little, quote-unquote, uh, gets leaked, you kind of just start to, it's, it's overthinking. You become, uh, uh, now what if they do this? Oh, God, what if they're doing right. this? Oh, it's like, if this is true, then what else could be true? Yeah, well, the government's trying to mind control me already, so what if there's actually aliens on the planet? Right. Did I ask you if you've watched that documentary, Wormwood? Uh, no, I don't, I don't recall that. On name. Netflix? I just came across it like after we started looking into this paper, and it's a really, really good documentary um, explaining uh, MKUltra. They interview this guy that was the son of one of the guys that was involved. I posted about it in a couple Facebook conspiracy groups, and a lot of people responded to that, and they were like, oh, you have no idea. So it was pretty good. Okay, so then in the paper, they go on to give their definition of a conspiracy theory. They say that a conspiracy theory can generally be counted as such if it's an effort to explain some event or practice by reference to the machinations of powerful people who have also managed to conceal their role. So it sounds like what they're essentially saying is if the theory tries to attribute what occurred to someone's purposeful intervention, then it could be considered a uh, potentially conspiracy theory. Yes, and um, I agree with that, but then it also goes on to um, and a direct quote from the paper. It says, uh, I may believe correctly that there are fires within the Earth's core, but if I believe that that's because the god Vulcan revealed it to me in a dream, my belief is unwarranted. They're trying to explain that an unwarranted, an unwarranted thought process uh, is potentially a conspiracy theory. Uh, but in reality, um, I don't really think that that's unwarranted. You know, the, the example they gave with the god Vulcan, yes, while it's, albeit it's a little bit out there, it's a little bit, uh, strange. You know, we don't really know. And this is giving a lot of credit to the god Vulcan. You know, who's to say that there is not? And he doesn't appear in your dreams, you know? And that sounds crazy, but, you know, so did Galileo when, you know, he was theorizing a heliocentric universe. Right. Yeah, the paper um, 
when it's defining all this stuff does kind of seem to sweep like either esoteric or maybe religious thought under the rug as if it like never bared any helpful information. But like we were talking about, we should point out that the inventor of the sewing machine uh, worked tirelessly trying to figure out how to make the machine work in a repeating pattern. And it was only in a dream that he realized how to make the needle and the machine work together. It was only through that that he got that information or the creator of the periodic table had a dream that showed him how to arrange this stuff. So it's not that these uh, dreamy, esoteric kind of things never bear any beneficial information. Yeah, exactly. It's just that it's kind of rare, I would suppose. So then the authors go on to reference the, philosoph uh, the philosopher Karl Popper, saying that he argued that conspiracy theories overlook the pervasive, unintended consequences of political and social action. They assume that all consequences must have been intended by someone. This is another way of saying, another way of explaining the definition that they put forward, essentially mm -hmm. that everything has to be attributed to intention. They disregard what kind of effect these macro scale forces have on things. And, that's, and that kind of goes back to the, uh, what we explained in the beginning was it's looking for the big bad, big bad villain. Nothing happens by chance. There must be a, a shadow council sitting yes. in the darkness that we don't see. And, you know, that very well could be, but it's sometimes as terrible as it is that sometimes just that's just the way it is. Right, right. Well, they go on to say that Popper captures an important feature of some conspiracy theories. Their appeal, conspiracy theories, lies in the attribution of otherwise inexplicable events to intentional action and an unwillingness to accept that the possibility that significant adverse consequences may be a product of invisible hand mechanism such as market forces or evolutionary pressures or a simple chance um, rather than anyone's plans. I came across in Scientific American uh, an article called The Paradox of Karl Popper. Um, if I can find a link, I'll add that to the show notes too. Um, the author there points out that Popper <laughs> rejected determinism. Um, he pointed this out during an interview with Karl Popper. He said that if you have sufficient knowledge of, say, chemistry and physics, you can predict what Mozart would write tomorrow. And that's a quote from him from that interview. They say that Popper knew well before modern chaos theory rolled around that these systems, say quantum or Newtonian, that we use to understand the world are actually unpredictable. And we're, always, we're figuring that out more and more as time goes on. So he goes on to say a quote from Karl Popper that I really liked. He said, there is chaos in every grass. So this is back to his original point regarding conspiracy theories. There's chaos everywhere and determinism is flatly wrong. And I think it would be a fair thing to say that holding strongly to conspiratorial thought is a means of determinism. Yes, I agree. I, I completely agree. When it comes to conspiracy theories, it's, it's, we're relying on trying to predict human behavior, trying to pin an agenda to, because even if there is a shadow council, we did all know about it, we're trying to figure out what that shadow council would want. And what, like, okay, well, what do they, what do they gain by, by framing said country for 9-11? What, what do they gain by assassinating JFK? We don't know because we're not them. We don't, that human, the human element is, is chaos in and of itself. And like nothing can really scientifically pin down our free will. Right. We're unpredictable. And that's determinism can't, can't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mesh. You know what I mean? 
Right. And speaking of determinism, I just uh, finished an audio book called The Courage to Be Disliked. Um, and they talk about, it's, it's based on Alfred Adler psychology. And they point out that determinism has its roots in etiology, which means that it's a cause and effect kind of thing. Because this happened, this is what is. What they need, what they're advocating is a shift from etiology to teleology, which doesn't put all this meaning on everything else that happened. It's not just a straight line, which is kind of what Karl Popper is saying, what these authors are saying is that it's not just a straight line of events, everything intentional. There's so many things going on, so many gears turning. So the other feature that they point out is that these theories have a self-sealing quality, meaning that they roll any rebuttal or counter-argument into the conspiracy itself, essentially saying any counter-speech is you're, you're part of this conspiracy. So I think this is something to keep in mind when we examine our own thoughts or beliefs. Is my argument or are my beliefs displaying this self-sealing quality? Because it's a good litmus test to see how you're approaching certain topics. Absolutely, and I mean, uh, we discussed earlier the, uh, you know, everyone has that crazy uncle that family reunions, you know, it's impossible to try and talk to him. And I mean, I feel like we all have those things that, you know, we will, we have our opinions on and it's unwavering and we all have those theories, whether we like to admit it or not, that uh, if someone was to come to us with, with uh, a counter argument that we initially, that our, our first reactions were, well, no, you're wrong, I know what's going on. We have to just be very careful about that because, I mean, that's dangerous, you know, because that's just, you're not learning that way. You're just exactly. blindly, after a while, you just end up blindly following whatever your, your message board or your friends are telling you. So at this point in the paper, we're essentially getting to the crux of the issue, which is the environment that allows conspiracies to thrive, and that's isolation. The authors point out that the problem for the wider society is to breach that informational isolation of the group or the network that holds the conspiracy theory. And they're saying that we have to do that by providing new information to those in that small group or network. So this seems pretty obvious, but the question at this point in the paper still remains, how do you do that? Because like you said, uh, we all know what it's like to try to talk to our family conspiracy theorists at the dinner table or whatever. The more resistance they encounter, the more entrenched they seem to become. I came across an article and the philosophy subreddit recently that's explaining um, a difference between analytical thought and essentially thinking through logically the process. The, the difference they point out there is that people that hold really strongly to certain conspiracy theories, it's not like they haven't done reflection on the theory. They haven't thought through the theory. It's just they're lacking in analytical thought. And by that, they mean lack of self like introspection. They're refusing to accept that, could I be wrong at these certain points? They've just accepted that they're right, and thusly their theory follows, which essentially is the driving force behind Alex Jones. Absolutely. You know, uh, Alex Jones is uh, one of my favorites. <laughs> just um, no, not bashing the man at all. It's just that, I mean, uh, uh, I would say recently, but I, I think it's been about, uh, I want to say like a month, maybe a month and a half since he's been banned from YouTube and Vimeo right. and stuff. And everything. Uh, <laughs> the, there's quotes online now that he's like, see, I knew it. They were, I knew they were going to ban me because I was right and all this nonsense. And that's just another example, you know, um, 
he's encountered uh, pushback, so now he's more entrenched in his in his ways. Um, they, in an attempt to get rid of the problem, they've made him bigger, and now all the people yes. that listen to, that listen to him are just like, "He was right! Oh right. my God, he was right!" You know. Um, but I mean, he's not bad. He's just very free spirited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I just saw uh, today uh, a headline that said that the judge a judge ruled. <clears throat> against Alex Jones in the Sandy Hook um, charges. Outstanding. Um, yeah, so so there's that. <laughs> Casually sips tea. <laughs> Ain't none of my business. <laughs> so the environment in which people share these ideas obviously plays a huge role in the potential for conspiratorial thought. The authors <clears throat> point out that in some domains, People suffer from what they're calling crippled epistemology in the sense that they know essentially very few things and what they do know about a certain situation is wrong. They say that many extremists fall into this category. Their extremism stems not from irrationality, not from you know, not thinking through their concept, but from the fact that they have very little relevant information and their extremist views are supported by that little bit that they know. Mm -hmm. So conspiracy theorizing often has this same feature. Those that believe that Israel was responsible for the attacks on 9-11 or that the Central Intelligence Agency killed President Kennedy may well be responding rationally to the information signals they receive, but again, not analytically. I feel like that's kind of like important. That's why it's important for us to, to gather news from all sources uh, so we don't end up just, you know, pulling from, you know, if I constantly am watching CNN, then I'm only getting one side of the story. And, you know, it's, it's well known that every, every major news network has an agenda. We need to pull from all sources to try and get a, a full, full story so we can form our own opinions. Exit the echoes, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this may explain, at least to some extent, why hardline conspiracy theorists tend to either gloss over or outright lack critical information about whatever process or group or concept that they're arguing. This makes me think of the story about the guy that made his own steam-powered rocket, and he was going to launch it over, what, Arizona? I don't remember where he was. And then once he got high enough, he was going to take pictures of the flat Earth. And um, he crashed. And, uh, <laughs> and an ambulance had to come get him again, glossing over or lacking critical information. Did that guy live? Please tell me he lived. He lived. Um, oh, he lives to fly another day. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> they go on to point out that when civil rights and civil liberties are restricted, little information is available, and what comes from the government can't be trusted. This is when conspiracy theories really thrive. If trustworthy information uh, justifies conspiracy theories and extremism and therefore violence, then in this context, terrorism is more likely to arise. So if you can't trust the government, if you can't trust your news outlets, you're going to be more open to potential conspiracy theories. And when you don't have a lot of information, how can you analytically go through what you're being told. This is an interesting point that they bring up about terrorism and how it comes about. It reminds me of a documentary I watched a while ago 
can't really remember the name. I think it's called the uh, birth of ISIS, the rise of ISIS, something like that. They explained how ISIS came about as a result of essentially a power vacuum and a destabilized government, which, if I'm understanding it correctly, the U.S. created this power vacuum. So it's really no surprise that an isolationist conspiratorial group such as ISIS that would rise out of this chaos when people don't have, you know, you can't trust your now destabilized government, it's no surprise that that would come about. Absolutely. It's the same thing with America right now. Um, No one trusts our our government, uh, be you Democrat, Republican, there's always the shady part that we just, there's very few people, I shouldn't say nobody, but there's very few people uh, that actually full, fully trust our government. And that's why we have the people that, that, that are hoarding weapons in their, in their basement and they're just like, you know, and they meet every Sunday and they talk about joining a militia and whatnot. You look at, and it was taught in history class, so I'm, I don't think I'm overstepping boundaries. Osama bin Laden and the... Uh, Al-Qaeda was, was trained by, by U.S. officials. You know, whenever there was communism spreading and, you know, it was during the Cold War, we went into Afghanistan they, because they said, we don't want uh, Russia's government. We don't want their, their, uh, their, them ruling over us, essentially. And we said, cool, here's weapons, here's training, now go fight for your country. Right. And this is what we talked about before when we were just uh, first getting into the paper is that it also raises an important point about the separation of church and state. I think this makes a really clear example as to why the separation of church and state is a crucial guideline for society sticking together. So because if you think about our political system, all the varying shades of opinion that exist Mm -hmm. across the political spectrum, because obviously it's not just left or right. It's all over the place. It more or less, though, boils down to two parties. And then these two parties, whether you like it or not, can enact certain procedures to amend the rules that we govern ourselves by. And they can do this because there's a framework for that. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a structure, a plan, a set of processes. There's a framework to make these changes. Now, if you consider something that's as open to interpretation as religion, is it any wonder that there are numerous groups interpreting it numerous different ways? You know, one Lutheran church might be completely different from another Lutheran church. They're called in, they might be called the same thing. There's such a wide spectrum because it's open to interpretation. But this is the crucial difference. With religion, there's not necessarily an agreed-upon framework for amending the way we interpret religious ideals. Essentially, if, say, we'll just take the church, for example, if they end up interpreting it differently than you interpret it, we just end up splitting off and starting our own group or church. We just keep subdividing. A government that's ran by way of religion, of course, would encounter significant issues because you're dealing with something that's open to interpretation that people are interpreting very differently. So it's no, it's no surprise that they run into these kind of issues. Absolutely. Uh, we have, we, we had this discussion, uh, last time we spoke, we dived into it and it was, uh, you know, as much as I joke about it, I'm Catholic and I'm sure the viewers have gathered that by now. Um, as much as I joke about, you know, like a, a beautiful Catholic world, a beautiful Catholic, uh, Catholic run United States, you know, um, the Catholic flag, um, emblazed on, on the American flag, um, <laughs> I realized that that it's just a joke. Like I realized that that would be absolute chaos. America's a melting pot. You couldn't, I couldn't imagine bringing in uh, people that follow Islam and people that follow um, 
Hinduism and, and Buddhism and everything into a, a Catholic-run United States. It would be chaos. There would be uprisings everywhere. This place mm-hmm. would be it would be it'd be madness it'd be wars everywhere (laughs) yeah yeah so they bring up the point that most people are not able to know on the basis of personal or direct knowledge why say an airplane crashed or why a leader was assassinated or why a terrorist attack succeeded um so at this point in the paper i thought the author points out this point that they can't know based on personal knowledge and thusly, a conspiracy theory can fill that gap. Because um, I think an added aspect of conspiratorial thought is that it acts as a certain type of echolocation, uh, essentially for showing us our underlying beliefs or ideas. If we pay attention to who our mind jumps to to blame in the face of a tragedy or major event, say when a terrorist attack succeeds or someone has got assassinated, like they're pointing out, Who do we jump to? Who do we most quickly decide to blame? Or, as far as the media we're consuming, who do they tend to quickly blame? Like I said, it it shines a light on those underlying beliefs or stereotypes or anything like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one feature of conspiracy theories that the authors provide a lot of detailed information on is how they spread. This is like a giant chunk of the paper. Yeah. One way that they refer to is called conspiracy cascades. They point out that reputational pressures help account for conspiracy theories and they feed conspiracy cascades. This kind of makes me think of a picture I saw recently of these two older dudes wearing a shirt that said, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. The personal identification or dependency our identity has on like our association with a group can be all the crutch we need to hold on to whatever theory that that group provides. So this is why it's so important to never take conclusions at face value. And like you said, Ramos, I lost my spot. (laughs) 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 Let me try it again. And like you said, Ramos, to diversify the ways or outlets from which we receive our information. Because again, this is kind of the, one of the main motivations behind our podcast is to get people to understand the nuances that make up these world events. I think it's funny how people, humanity as a whole, we all, uh, we label things and we're so obsessed with those labels. And, you know, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal. My brother-in-law asked me one day during one of our drunken political uh, talks, um, asking me whether I was a Democrat or a Republican. I hesitated for a second and I said Republican and he's like, you're wrong. And I'm like, okay, well then, all right, what, well, let's see where this takes us. And uh, he's like, you should be neither. You should, you shouldn't really identify with either one. The fact that you identify with, with one, that, that just brings you closer to, to uh, isolating yourself into their ideals. It brings you closer basically to, to, denying the other one you know he said mm-hmm. we should be, we should be neither we shouldn't be we shouldn't be republican or democrat or you know libertarian or anything like that we should be just you just just be just, he told me just be gilbert and just choose pick and choose what you believe and don't identify with one specific group because that that's going to paint you into a category and you'll eventually 
fill the rest out with that category. You'll eventually fill into the rest of those ideals. Right, right, right. That's so the, going into that, that shirt you, you saw uh, says I'd rather be a, uh, a Russian than a, than a, than a Democrat. That being a Democrat wouldn't be that bad, guys. Relax. Right, right, right. It's the ultimate identity politics. Yeah, it's insane. So another way that these theories spread is through, obviously, our conversations. But it happens to a larger degree than we may realize. The authors point out that there is specific evidence of this phenomenon among citizens of France. There's a study that, to, that they're referencing um, with respect to foreign aid. Mm-hmm. They trust the United States a great deal less and suspect its intentions a great deal more after they talk with one another. Their beliefs before are you know, here on the spectrum, and after they talk just amongst themselves, it's moved further into distrusting the U.S. and their foreign aid policies. So I think this is a really important point that the paper brings up because it relates to our interactions with one another and, I would say, obviously, on social media. We've all seen how people can be exceedingly rude, offensive, or mean when they're behind a keyboard as opposed to -to face-to-face or how readily we're willing to jump into a comment thread and just add our opinion. If conspiracies, including potentially dangerous ones, for example, I would say the anti-vax arguments, can be either initiated or strengthened by our conversations with one another, then we really need to think carefully and take responsibility for not only how we talk or through what medium, but also what we talk about. Resisting the urge to end up in this echo chamber in our conversations could result in a weakening of group polarization, um, as they point out in the paper. And if we need anything in the country right right now, it is less polarization. Absolutely, I agree. I would agree with wholeheartedly. Um, That just goes back to, you know, surrounding yourself with uh, those people with the same ideals and the same beliefs. It just creates your own little mini nation of your own policies. Exactly, exactly. So another aspect of the spread of conspiracies is reputational. As a result of hearing various arguments, social interactions will lead people toward a more extreme point that's in line with what the group members initially believed. Um, So reputational factors matter as well. People usually want to be perceived favorably by other group members, hence the Russian Democrat t-shirt. Once they hear what others believe, some will adjust their positions to at least slightly in the direction of the dominant position, whatever the majority group uh, says. This is why we have to take responsibility for what we choose to discuss and how we discuss it. We have to do the work on a personal level because this aspect of conspiracy spreading is an individual personal aspect. Absolutely. It, it, it kind of goes back to uh, you know whenever you're young, uh, your parents always say, you never be afraid to stand, for, stand up for what you believe in. That's, that's the underlying uh, message that you need to just carry with you. And it, it, sometimes it's, it's not a totalitarian government, or it's not a, a hate group you're fighting against. Sometimes it's just people at work that are talking about down with the government, they're all monsters, they're all, they're all snakes. You can't, you, just can't, you can't just fold over like that. So the authors go on to point that once this polarization occurs, or these cascades arise, and the group's median view begins to move in a certain direction, doubters and halfway believers will tend to depart 
while intense believers will remain. So the overall size of the group may shrink, but the group may also pick up new believers who are even more committed. But in any event, the remaining members will, by self-selection, display more fanaticism. This made me think, what would happen if we identify as, say, doubters or half-believers or middle-of-the-roaders, as the author refers to, what if we refused to give up on our groups? If we resisted the social distillation that occurs as beliefs morph and force the group to be diluted by diversified representation. So, for example, think of a church. If the views in the church start to shift one way or another, and we as middle-of-the-roaders leave when we get offended or uncomfortable, then, again, by self-selection or process of elimination, we've helped create a more extreme group by us leaving. What if instead we stayed and we did the hard work of interpersonal relationships with our neighbors and we trudged through this kind of thing with one another? I feel like that's something that we may have lost is the tendency to strive and try. Instead, it's, it's so easy to just split off when you become offended. But if you do the work and stay there in your group, even if you're uncomfortable, you help keep it diverse and you prevent the formation of a more extreme group by you leaving. Walking away from it, I mean, that's people always say, like, you know, be the bigger person, just walk away. Sometimes it's not the, the big thing to do. Sometimes you need to engage people's minds and actually I try to have a discussion. Last we talked about this, I gave you an example. Uh, the, the same-sex marriage became the law of the land. And then I went to church all excited, you know, happy for my, uh, for my family members um, that could marry. And, you know, my mom um, was bisexual or is bisexual and, you know, she lost her partner. So she lost, missed out on that, but we were both pretty happy that it became, you know, an open thing now. Went to church, and then my priest, before the service even began, uh, kind of clarified on it. He said, well, the Catholic Church uh, recognizes that this is the law of the land, but it's not a marriage. It's a union. And I was so pissed off, and I could have just left right then and there. And then I had um, RCA, which is basically like a, a class at the end of, uh, at the end of uh, Mass that uh, you need to take if you're going to try to go through First Communion and get confirmed. And our, my instructor asked everyone, I was like, well, how do we like the priest said today? And I was like, well, it's bullshit. He was like, what? I was like, not the gospel. The gospel was fine. But his little uh, spiel at the beginning was kind of bullshit. And that triggered a, a, a discussion amongst like me and the instructor and then like the eight other people that were there, all of them varying ages. I'm like, I think the oldest was 60 and the youngest was like 17. And we all had this discussion and, you know, didn't even talk about, you know, what it takes to be baptized and uh, get first communion, basically what the class was supposed to be on. But we right. all had this discussion about um, the same-sex marriage and, like, you know, had I left, um, I wouldn't have been able to have that discussion with anybody. Right. And, you know, maybe I changed some minds, minds maybe I didn't. Uh, but Right, right. But know. still, like you were saying, the point is, even in that context, someone is, someone like you, is required. And if you self-selected yourself out of the group, what's left? A more concentrated, further to this viewpoint group, a more fanatical group, essentially. So then, again, at, at this point in the paper, the authors suggest that the, they say the social etiology of such conditions suggests that the appropriate remedy is not individual treatment, 
but the introduction of cognitive, informational, and social diversity into the isolated networks that supply extremist theories. So I would, I, I again, I don't agree with this. Right there in the quote, there's, they're referencing etiology, a cause and effect type of uh, situation. But secondly, I would argue the exact opposite. Individual treatment, I think, is the answer. More specifically, the individual taking personal responsibility. Because like we were saying, the effects of conspiracy theories spreading is a personal, individual phenomenon. So mm -hmm. why wouldn't it be individual treatment that would be the solution? And yeah. you were saying before that um, you've told me about individuals that you know that have experienced, um, let's say like trauma, and you've watched how that changed their views around conspiratorial thought. What role in, that, in the experience you've had would you say the trauma plays in our tendency to adopt those kind of views? I'd say the trauma is probably a big factor. I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's individual and how they perceive it. Um, you know, some of my friends have, are retired and, you know, some of them have seen and done things that they're not comfortable with. My friend, uh, the one that comes to mind, you know, he had some traumatic experiences happen to him while he was overseas. And, you know, he came back and, you know, knowing him beforehand, he was pretty level-headed level and he was just like, didn't really hold any conspiracy theories, didn't really have an opinion on, uh, a specific group at all but you know coming back from overseas and seeing the things he did you know getting discharged and he was diagnosed with PTSD and you know he had to do some crazy stuff and uh, you know he saw some terrible things happen and, uh, seeing the change and how he blames a certain group of people I'm sure we can all I'm not gonna tiptoe around it you know he blames Muslims for a lot of stuff now or rather he did he's gotten a lot better now when he first came back it was just you know the religion is full of hate and all this nonsense but that's all because of the trauma that he saw Right, you know? <laughs> exactly, and and if you take the, um, if you take the author's point of view, it, it, just like having him see, I don't know, more stuff on Facebook that counters his assumptions, that's not gonna, that has nothing to do with it. You know what I mean? That's not gonna change the, like you're saying, the effect happens on a personal level. It has to be on a personal level that the change occurs. So essentially, the solution that this paper proposes, which I guess is probably clear by this point, we don't necessarily agree with, is they're saying that as far as for a government is concerned, the government should utilize agents that either anonymously, anonymously or explicitly try to infiltrate these isolated groups, these networks, with counter-narratives counter information. I don't, I guess I can speak for both of us at this point. I don't, we don't agree with this solution that the paper proposes. Getting the government involved in dispelling conspiracy theories is not the solution. It's not going to work. If you create e agents that are either anonymously or explicitly like trying to infiltrate with counter information, that's undoubtedly going to backfire. It borders on creating thought police. It's spooky. That's <laughs> what it is. And there's already been efforts uh, made in our own, you know, our own U.S. social networks and stuff for this kind of thing to occur. But it always backfires because if they're explicitly known to be trying to sway the conversation, they're going to be just pigeonholed. You know what I mean? Yeah, Excommunicated. Absolutely. And then if they're anonymously trying to do it, if they get found out, 
It's, it's terrifying. Gonna, yeah, it's going to blow back even worse. This is not a solution. That's, that's crazy there to suggest that. <laughs> yeah. So all, all we have is each other and, yeah. and these interpersonal relationships. If we lose that, if we let that fall away, then, then we've lost it all. This government intervention thing, I don't think is a solution to that. They're going to go insane either way. And then if you try to get involved, if you try to send out agents to their level, that's going to make things so much worse. Like, yep. That's so crazy to me. They would even suggest that. Could you imagine? Yeah. No, that's insane. Don't do yeah. that. <laughs> and that's the problem, essentially, uh, with the conclusion of this paper. It does a really good job at defining conspiracy, explaining the thought process that leads to it, explaining how it's spread, but it loses me, loses you at the point where it's, it's telling the government through policy and law to dispel these things. It doesn't yeah. make it doesn't make any sense. And so further to that point, um, not long ago, I heard a podcast uh, called Hi-Fi Nation, um, which I'll try to link to the episode in the show notes. Um, the title of the show or the episode is called Chamber of Facts. So they showed by exposing an individual to the echo chamber of the opposing side. So for example, they've got these two self-identifying right-wing individuals who have volunteered to for, I think it's a week, maybe two weeks, for a certain amount of time, only take in, you know, left-leaning news outlets. What they showed at the conclusion of that study is that it did not help bring these people closer to center. It actually had the opposite effect. It pushed them even further right, further into their original camp. So this would play out in reverse. So at first when I heard this, it made me kind of feel like, in a way, it's undermining what we're aiming to do with the podcast, expose people to nuances and larger issues. But then I realized that something the host said uh, near the end, the one thing they can empirically prove is that we hate each other. And the fact that we know we hate each other acts as fuel for hating each other. It doesn't have to be like that. That's something we have control of. That's something we can change. And it made me realize that our podcast is not so much about bringing up the counter information or shining light on these kind of sub-level details. What we're trying to do and what I don't think the government could do is we're trying to rehumanize each other through these conversations. We're trying to essentially not change, but soften our position by connecting these opposing sides on a human level. Because this is essentially what we're lacking right now is empathy for who we view as the other or our opposition and compassion for the opposition. This is what we're trying to do is by shining the light on these things, we reconnect people on a human level so that we can have space mentally, emotionally, to see where they're coming from. We don't have to change our views or adopt their views, but if you just throw counter information at people, you're just going to further entrench them. Yeah, yeah I'd have to agree. I mean, um, I, I disagree with it. I mean, I feel like it's just open communication that needs to be ha have, have happened, um, you know? Um, I feel like the best way to, to combat conspiracy theory is, is just what we've been talking about here. Don't leave the opposite echo chamber, you know, just, um, you know, stay, be a middle grounder. You know, like you said, try to have empathy for your opposition. I mean, don't just view, don't view them as an enemy, just view them as, you know, someone who disagrees, you know, just view them as another individual with different ideals. Don't view everyone as, you know, 
they're you're, they're not an opponent. Exactly. It makes me think of. Uh, I guess the last point I would make on the paper is it makes me think of this point that was in the audiobook I was talking about, where they're explaining if you look around at, at, at people and you view them as they call them comrades, view mm. people as your comrade, as your partners. And not like you're saying, as your enemy, it makes the world a much more simple place. Yeah. And it allows you to, like you're saying, soften your grip that you've got on these, mm -hmm. on your views. And because the opposing views are no longer something foreign and, and an enemy that you have to prevent from getting in. Yeah. And I mean, we touched a little bit earlier saying, you know, uh, you know, don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe in just because you're listening to a, a different view doesn't mean you're giving up your ideals. You know, it just means you're you're open to discussion. Don't be a prick about it, and then either one leave. You're like, oh, well, you just don't, you just don't know what you're talking about. Don't be that. Don't be that guy. But also on the on the same note, don't be rude whenever you're discussing. Just have a discussion. Don't be a exactly. dick about it. <laughs> exactly. Hold everything lightly. Yeah. So the paper we were discussing today is conspiracy. <laughs> Try this again. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so the paper we are discussing today is Conspiracy Theories, uh, again by Cass R. Sunstein and Adrian Vermula from the Harvard University Law School and University of Chicago Law School. You can find a link to that in our show notes, as well as the other uh, links to the things that we've referenced. And again, on Stitcher, you can find us and subscribe to the show. <laughs>